so I think part of the reason why why I asked you back on the podcast, Todd, is is for superstition that I, that I'm afraid that if I don't do a Super Bowl podcast, the Chiefs might lose again this year. I I think that's perfectly reasonable. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today's episode is the latest in what has become a series of Super Bowl special episodes done in tandem with my Kansas City Chiefs playing for the NFL championship. This is their fourth Super Bowl appearance in five years, and their only loss in those first three appearances came in 2021 when I didn't do a Super Bowl podcast, which out of a very real sense of superstition obligates me to record one this year. This year's Super Bowl features the same matchup as it did four years ago with my Kansas City Chiefs playing the San Francisco 49ers, and that means I'm going to remix and update my January 2020 interview with novelist and 49ers fan Todd Goldberg. Now, a lot has changed since that interview, which was done just six weeks before the COVID pandemic was declared in the U.S. and a little more than three and a half months before I met my wife Kiki, an event I described in episode 142 of this podcast. For all that has changed in four years, however, a lot has stayed the same, in particular the emotional relationship Todd and I have to our favorite football teams. This in mind, the first part of our episode is a remix of our 2020 conversation about what it means to be a sports fan your whole life. Then in the second half of this episode, we touch on some new topics like the way sports can affect people we didn't expect to love sports, people like my mother or Todd's grandmother. We also talk about the merits of fair weather fandom and the likability of the Chiefs. We talk about the way the relationship between Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey and pop star Taylor Swift has given a whole new energy to this year's Super Bowl in ways that go beyond the game itself. It's been a great four years to be a sports fan in Kansas between two Super Bowl victories and one KU Jayhawks basketball national title. In the initial interview, I talked to Todd about how my NFL fandom was always pretty generalized since the Chiefs hadn't been great for the previous 50 years. I talk about my habit of going out of my way to watch non-Chiefs teams play in the Super Bowl during my prime vagabonding years, a tradition that covered 18 cities and 10 countries on four continents, including Korea, Egypt, India, Brazil, Argentina, Namibia, and Sri Lanka. In fact, way back in 2002, I recorded a national public radio piece about the task of watching the big game in Thailand, back when I was living there writing my first book, Vagabonding. The host of that NPR show was a woman named Diana Nyad, who, 21 years after introducing my segment, was the subject of an Oscar-nominated Annette Bening movie last year about her feats as an endurance swimmer. One funny footnote to our old NPR episode is the way Diana Nyad introduced the episode by suggesting that NPR listeners kind of despise pro football. Here's what that 21-year-old radio segment sounded like back in the day in its entirety. If you have zero interest in all the Super Bowl hype, you're not alone. Pundits attempting ad nauseum to predict an unpredictable game can get pretty darn tiresome. On the other hand, the Super Bowl is such an American institution at this point. I mean, this is the 36th year of the game that we can surely dredge up a little sympathy for Americans traveling abroad who can't find a way to watch the game. Rolf Potts knows the disenfranchised feeling. He's been in Asia for five years, and he's lived the pain of being in exile without a Super Bowl to watch. I'm asking you to put aside your loathing of all things Super Bowl, if that's where you stand, and try to relate to Rolf and his quest to connect with his memories of home. For some people, missing the Super Bowl might not seem like that big of a deal. But for me, it's not just a sporting event. Like Christmas and the 4th of July, I see Super Bowl Sunday as a sacred and patriotic holiday. 
Regardless of which teams are playing, the ritual of watching the game is vital to my sense of cultural tradition. This year, since I'm living off the beaten track in southern Thailand, I'm once again faced with the dismal prospect of missing the Super Bowl. What's more, my expat neighbors don't even sympathize. Richard, will you watch the Super Bowl this year? No, I will not watch the Super Bowl. Why not? Don't you like football? No, I really don't like football. Why, why don't you like football? Well, I think it's a rather stupid game. As an American, that sounds a bit like blasphemy. Where I grew up, the NFL was the cultural equivalent of the Greek pantheon. To me, football stars like Joe Montana and Ed Too Tall Jones were like Zeus and Apollo. But NFL icons just don't mean as much to the other travelers I've met in Thailand. Do you know who Rolf Benerschke is? No. He played for the Chargers in the 70s? He was a kicker? <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I don't. He was Norwegian. Rolf. R Rolf. Rolf. What's his last name? Benerschke. <laughs> is that Norwegian last name? <laughs> to be honest, my interest in football stars peaked out when I was a kid. But just as you don't have to be a devout Christian to love Christmas, I'm always a faithful football fan come Super Bowl time. My devotion to travel is what complicates things. Two years ago, I missed one of the most exciting matchups in Super Bowl history because I was off exploring the Egyptian Sinai. Last year, I was at the massive Kumbh Mela festival in India. Over 10 million Hindus bathed in the Ganges that day, but I couldn't find a single soul who even knew what the Super Bowl was, let alone tell me who'd won. Here in southern Thailand, the locals are almost as ambivalent as they were in India. Will you watch the Super Bowl this year? Super Bowl. Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah. The more I ask around, the more it seems like I'm doomed to miss the big game for the third year in a row. Then I remember that my landlady has a satellite dish. Seeing this as my only hope, I march over to her house. At first, she has no idea what I'm talking about, but eventually I pester her into calling the TV station. So this is what it comes down to. One Hail Mary. One long bomb on a safety blitz. One fateful phone call that will spell my destiny. Caught up in the reverie, I envision two possible futures. One where I blissfully watch Super Bowl 36 and go on to live a happy, productive life. And another, grimmer fate, where I miss the game and forever lose contact with my cultural heritage, exiled from my own past, like Napoleon in the South Atlantic. In a moment, I know my answer. Yes, yeah, sure. In Thailand, um, government TV. It will show the Super Bowl. Yes, Super Bowl, sure. All right. So this Sunday, as you settle into your easy chair with a plate full of buffalo wings and the remote control, I'll be sitting in the glow of my landlady's TV set on the other side of the world. By the time the teams line up for kickoff, the Monday morning sun will be rising over Thailand, and it won't matter what team I root for, because I'll have already won. This is Rolf Potts from Renong, Thailand, for the Savvy Traveler. After this NPR segment aired, I sat in a room in Thailand and watched the Patriots beat the Rams to establish what became a pro football dynasty that it spanned two decades. Now, as the Chiefs seek to solidify their own football dynasty, Todd Goldberg and I expand our conversation about how sports teams and sports fandom continues to affect our way of being in the world. Let's listen in.
But before we get into too many specifics, I'm curious to know how you got into it. Because like for me, I don't remember not being in the NFL. It feels like I was just sort of born into this ritual of watching games on Sunday and drawing pictures of little men in helmets. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. I've, I've been spending some time thinking about it. And when I started watching was probably when I was five. So about 1976, which is when the Raiders, who are my number one team, um, actually were in the Super Bowl. Um, so I grew up in the Bay Area in Walnut Creek. And so the Raiders and the 49ers uh, obviously were there when I was a kid. But my parents were long since divorced. And um, my brother was not into sports at all. And my sisters weren't into sports at all. But I was always drawn to it. And I remember sitting on the floor in front of the TV, watching Raider games and 49er games, trying to figure out what it was I was watching huh. and trying to figure out what down meant. Um, and the other thing is that I'm, I'm terrifically colorblind. So thank God back then, I think we only had a black and white television or else I never would have known <laughs> <laughs> who was on which team. Um, so I think it must have been that, you know, kids at school were talking about it. So I started to watch it because it wasn't part of um, my family. But it was also, and we talked about this, I think, on one of our previous shows together about our relationship to sports, is that, you know, I was a weird, geeky kid. And if I knew about sports, I could talk to the people that were bullying me. Huh. Or I could, you know, I could go play catch with them out in the street or whatever it might be. And so, you know, I ended up memorizing all kinds of bizarre information about every football team and every Super Bowl. Like for a while, I knew like every starting and backup quarterback for every Super Bowl team in history. And, you know, just absurd sort of minutia of these things um, as a defense mechanism. But now, you know, I'm 49 years old and I keep saying, well, maybe I'll stop watching as much football as I did in the past because of there's, you know, like I see these kids getting blown up and I just know that they're about to have a brain injury. And I know that they're, you know, there's this plantation um, style of governance of the players coming down from the ownership. Like the, the NFL is a corrupt, awful league. And yet I have the full NFL package and every Sunday during the season, I watch about 30 games. I just, I can't stop myself. I'm addicted. Well, it's funny that like everything, you, you, there's a lot of problematic, uh, to use a catchphrase word, uh, aspects to the NFL. But as someone who's sort of been a, a Chiefs and Chiefs adjacent fan forever, it's like suddenly this week in history, I don't care. You know, like right. I'm, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just so excited. And, and it's funny that you talk about, you know, the NFL as a way to talk to people, you know, because in that, in that NPR podcast or in that NPR broadcast, you know, I was thinking as I was listening to it that, you know, travel can become a way to engage with people. You know, you can basically right. talk with anybody from anybody in the world because travel allows you to just know more about the world. But I came up, I was the same way, you know, that, that, that sports was just something that I would naturally talk about with people, especially with guys. And it was just always mm -hmm. very comfortable. And I remember being like, like 26 or something and talking to this guy, like a fellow travel writer. And he's like, yeah, I went to Colorado college. I'm like, Oh yeah, they had a West coast offense, didn't they? And he's like, 
And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? So like, I'd forgotten that there's, there's, there is, there are people who don't care. Right. And right. the fact that I would know that Colorado college had a West coast offense for its football team. Right. Um, <laughs> it, it just, it, I, I, I'm, I'm awakened every once in a while to the fact that people don't care as much as I do and always have about football. So yeah, and there's a strange intersection um, that I see on the internet of my friends. Um, you know, and at this point in my life, the vast majority of my friends have my same job, so they're writers. And, you know, most of the time, if they're tweeting or talking on Facebook about the things that are interesting to them, it's, oh, this essay I just read or this story I just read. And then suddenly during um, sports seasons, uh, you know, football season, basketball season, baseball season, you know, you know, Matthew Zapruder and I, who are good old friends, we talk more on the internet about uh, sports than we talk ever about, you know, gerunds or something. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's an interesting, different kind of shorthand um, for the friendship that we have, too. It's a weird experience. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's, I'm curious to know how connected to your youth this ongoing obsession with football is and like how you became emotionally attached to football when you were young. Because like, I'm really excited that the Chiefs are in the Super Bowl, but literally the last time they were there was before I was born. Right. Um, that didn't that didn't preclude me from having an emotional relationship with football, including a fact that I have a theory, uh, sort of my is my Star Wars theory of fandom because I didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't like the Raiders when I was young, and I didn't like right. the Steelers when I was young, but I liked the Cowboys, and so I think because I was entering football fandom at the same age that Star Wars was blowing up, like the Cowboys, the Roger Staubach, Tom Landry Cowboys were mm -hmm. my Luke Skywalker, right, and the Steelers and the Raiders were the evil empire in my in my child mind, and right. so, so, so I. I <laughs> That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, it's of course it's deeply tied to my childhood. I mean, I I was such a profound um, Raiders and 49ers fan when I was a kid. You you can't find a single photo of me from my youth where I'm not wearing a T-shirt that says "Silver and Black Attack" on it or uh, "Montana to Rice," you know, which were these T-shirts that they made. And I was just looking. Um, the other day after the uh, 49ers won, um, I had this bin in my house filled with the front pages of the San Francisco Chronicle and Examiner from Joe Montana throwing the pass over Everson Walls to Dwight Clark in the back of the end zone for the catch, mm. um, which propelled the 49ers to their first Super Bowl. Um, I have all of that stuff. I've collected all of it. Um, and, you know, it's, it, of course, you know, when you're a kid, when you can identify with a winner, it's pretty cool, right? Like no one ever thought I was a champion athlete, <laughs> but when I was in my backyard and I was Dwight Clark, you know, I was Dwight Clark. You couldn't, you couldn't stop me. I, I'm jumping over Everson walls. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's deeply connected to my memories of, of childhood. And, you know, as a, as a Raider fan too, you know, they're moving to Las Vegas next season. And, uh, you know, I've realized, well, I'm just going to not stop being a fan because really what I, it's not like I go up to Oakland anymore to see games. I basically just like their shirts, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's tied to some history that I have some emotional connection to being seven years old and being Jim Plunkett in my backyard. Um, and it's the same for the 49ers for me. Like when I, 
see them play in Santa Clara, you know, in my mind, they're still playing at Candlestick Park. In my mind, we're still going to San Francisco the night before the Super Bowl and walking on the streets because it was just a giant party before the, the 49ers were in the Super Bowl. Like, you know, it was a street party, basically. People going crazy in, on Market Street. And so there's, you know, of course, there's nostalgia tied to all of these things. Um, and, you know, I've, I've held on to my fandom um, my entire life. Like, I've never stopped being a fan of the teams that I grew up with, even though I don't live in that city anymore. And, you know, that that's, says something about loyalty, but it also says something about, um, you know, your Star Wars idea, too. Like, this thing that you attached yourself to when you're six or seven or eight years old as part of your being well, you can't just give it up. You can't you can't just lop it off like Luke's hand. It's still <laughs> gonna be there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm curious to know if there are any teams that you grew to hate because I, I, I Oh yeah. Hatred seemed as strong as as loves for me. And you know, in my it was so such a simple world when I was good because I never became a strong Chiefs fan because there was nothing to root for in the seventies and eighties. But right. I was a Royals fan and the evil empire was always the Yankees. We always ah. lost to the Yankees in the playoffs. And then as a Cowboys fan, the enemy was always was always the Steelers. Um mm-hmm. and and even like there was, you know, I, I grew up going to church and there was a, a Christian comic called Tom Landry and the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> Have you heard of this? No. God. <laughs> No, <laughs> Sarah Vowell actually wrote about this. The, the the NPR commentator Sarah Vowell she wrote this great McSweeney's article called "Tom Landry Existentialist Dead at Seventy Six or something, because this this Christian comic and if you grew up in a Christian home in the seventies, odds are you had this in your home. Where basically Tom Landry was like a successful football coach, but something was missing, and it was Jesus, right? So it's this oh comic book, and, and so it, that just underscored the fact that 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 was my Luke Skywalker. The Rebel right. Alliance was the Dallas Cowboys, that God was on our side, and the Steelers were somehow the spawn of the devil meets the empire. So I'm curious right. to know, like, did you have teams that you really yes. didn't like? Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll start with the Kansas City Chiefs. Okay. I hate the Kansas City Chiefs. Okay. I, I would rather any other team be in the Super Bowl <laughs> than the Kansas City Chiefs. Well, that makes you a Raiders fan. That really yes. does. Um, and I, I've got an interesting Christian Okoye story that I'll get to in just one moment. Uh, I hate the Denver Broncos. Okay. I hate the Seattle Seahawks. Hmm. And I hate the Pittsburgh Steelers. Gotcha. And it's all for, um, it's all because of their relationship to the teams that I really liked. And like you, when I was a kid, like the Dallas Cowboys, they I didn't feel one way or the other about them because they were America's team. And to root against them was to root against... Jimmy Carter or Ronald Reagan or whomever. Um, they just seemed like, you know, that star on the side of their helmet. Like, oh, I, I'd like to have a star on the side of my helmet. That seems cool. Uh, but the Steelers were mean and vicious and, you know, they won all the time and they didn't, they weren't, you know, they weren't like the Yankees where it seemed like they were buying titles. They were just better and mean about it. Hmm. And so I was always a little scared of like Jack Lambert and people like that. Um, So I always have hated those teams. The Seahawks I hated for being in the AFC West. And then I hated for being in the NFC West um, and going up against the 49ers. So I've always hated those teams, but so the chiefs specifically, like, you know, I, I play a lot of John Madden football on my PlayStation four I have never in my life 
played as the Kansas City Chiefs. I would rather set myself on fire than play as the Kansas City Chiefs. <laughs> That's so, such a Raiders fan sentiment. <laughs> I know. So uh, a couple years ago, I was on a plane from Vegas, um, and Christian Okoye, the great Kansas City Chiefs running back, was seated next to me. The Nigerian nightmare. The Nigerian nightmare. And I like I immediately recognized him. And then he was sitting next to me. And there was thank, thankfully there was a seat between us because the dude is huge. And we're it was a Vegas to LA flight. And we're sitting there and I was just like, I gotta say something. And I said, hey man, I just gotta let you know, uh like I loved you on Tecmo Bowl. <laughs> and he's like, you loved me on Tecmo Bowl, but not in real life? And I was like, I'm a Raider fan. He's like, oh, yeah, okay, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> and then he invited me to a golf tournament. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> it was a weird night. <laughs> that, that is a really strange Christian Okoye story. Yeah, but he was very pleasant. We had this very nice conversation across the entire flight where he's like, did every white boy at age 17 own Tecmo Bowl? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> every single one of us. And you could rush Christian Okoye for 800 yards a game. Wow. It was like Christian Okoye and Bo Jackson. Those are your two. And you were set. As- and he was like, everywhere I go, I meet someone who looks just like you, who's like, I loved you in Tecmo Bowl. <laughs> This feels like it could be like a literary anthology if we can get like um, him to write about being in Techno Bowl and Natalie Portman to write about having action figures made of her that uh, that also young men play with. You know, that, <laughs> that, 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 there's got to be this weird level at which certain members of our society are made into what are essentially toys that bring right. much delight to people in a way that's very weird. Yeah, I, I had that feeling from from. Mr. Okoye, like that he was just fascinated by this. Like, I mean, the dude only played like six years, right? But he lives on in my mind as the the greatest running back in the history of the NFL. <laughs> well, I'm I'm curious to know how you know, besides video games, you interacted with your NFL fandom back in the day. Because you and I talked about the Sears catalog in another podcast, right. and it felt like that Sears catalog was really working hand in hand with with NFL, with the NFL. They had way more NFL stuff than Major League Baseball stuff. Right. I remember getting nerfs and like agonizing over what color of nerf football to buy. Same. Same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so so do you remember any like one what kind of games and products do you remember from when you were young and two where did you get your information about the NFL because in my world it was a real the NFL is on is is on TV on Sunday. You watch the halftime show to find out what the other teams are doing. You watch the evening news, and then you wait a week to get more information. Right. Well, I, I had a lucky benefit in that my mom was a newspaper columnist, and she um, her desk was right next to the sports desk at the Contra Costa Times. And the Contra Costa Times, so this is in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Contra Costa is in the East Bay. Um and her two closest friends at the newspaper at the time were these two sports writers. One was named Charlie Zeno, and the other's name was Chuck Drysdale. God, I haven't thought about that guy in 40 years. Huh. And 
those two guys gave me all the swag I could ever want in my entire life. And I got to go to a lot of Raiders and 49ers games when I was a kid also because my mom was in the press. And so she would get press tickets to go see games and stuff. Um, And my mom was also dating periodically different members of both the Raiders and the 49ers when I was a kid. Um, For a while, she dated this ex-punter from the Raiders um, (laughs) whose name I can't remember. He was Not Ray Guy. No, no, he was the Raiders punter before Ray Guy. Uh-huh. Oh, um, uh, Mercer. His last name was Mercer. Huh. Mike Mercer. Oh, God, it all came back to me. <laughs> this guy named Mike Mercer, uh-huh. who was a place kicker and punter for the Raiders right before they drafted Ray Guy. But also, like, you know, I had all the handheld games, um, and I would always imagine I was on the Raiders, you know, or the 49ers playing these little handheld Coleco games or whatever they were. And I feel like, too, that they sometimes were branded like you'd buy the box and say 49ers on it. But then you'd open it up and it would just be, you know, whatever blase game it might be. Hmm. Um, I had all the the playing cards or the trading cards, of course. Um, and then, like you know, the... I would. I had um, a dice game that I sort of made up for football. Like I had all kinds of stuff. It, you know, it, it actually sort of speaks to my general obsessiveness uh, specifically. Where like I get into something, and I was like, I I knew everything about all of the players through history. I just got super obsessive. Like if someone said, "Oh, are you a Raider fan?" If I became a Raider fan. Uh, 1961 they played four games at Keysar Stadium like no one cares <laughs> no, one, no one needs to know that <laughs> yeah I remember I came, when I was living overseas I was in Korea and I was talking to my friends and their girlfriends about like quarterbacks of the 1970s you know I'm right. comparing Joe Theismann to Fran Tarkington and people again it was that it was like talking about the West Coast offense at Colorado College people are just like what the fuck is wrong with you, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, no one cares <laughs> But it, but it's funny how you your obsession was channeled through your mom because mine was also in a way because my mom was a, she was a school teacher but she was also like a farm girl who grew up with one pair of shoes a year and uh, and so it was just an extravagance like there there was no going three hours up the road to Kansas City and I think in uh, you know ten years of being an obsessive NFL fan I got one NFL lunchbox which I loved. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it, it have the AFC on one side and the NFC on the other, and it might be the episode art for this for this episode. <laughs> but but I just remember I just remember how um, information could be hard to come by. I mean, young right. NFL fans, it must be easy for them now. I had a book by Jerry Eisenberg. I'm actually holding in my hands now called Championship: The NFL Title Games. That goes back to 1933. Oh my gosh. And this, I, I had forgotten until I revisited how much of my information about the game of football was informed by this book. So, like, I knew that, like, people used leather helmets in the 1930s. Right. Know? I knew who, um, you know, I knew who Lou Graza was. Do you? Have right. You ever- I remember him too. Yeah. The he he's the the punting award is named for him. Yeah, he was a he was a kicker and an offensive lineman. Right. right. Oh, I've got another important thing, but go ahead. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> well, I have an, well, one thing that I that I noticed when rereading this book is that it mentions Marshall Goldberg. Oh my! <laughs> have, have you heard of Marshall Goldberg? Well, only in the sense that I'm sure I have a cousin named Marshall Goldberg. <laughs> I, you know what I forgot though, Rolf, is that. 
My mom married an ex MFL player. What? I forgot about that. What? <laughs> How does that happen? I, they were only married <laughs> for six months. I totally forgot that my mom was married to an ex MFL player. His name was Don Curran. Mm-hmm. And he was, uh, he'd gone to Cal and was a linebacker at Cal. Mm-hmm. Uh, of some renown in the 19 early 1950s he was drafted by the chicago cardinals before they moved to st louis uh-huh. and he spent two years on the chicago cardinals on their taxi squad never played um and then he got a concussion in a car accident and uh never went back to play football went and got his law degree and uh 20 years later married my mom wow <laughs> Yeah, I forgot about that. I'm sorry. <laughs> You'd think I would have remembered the salient detail that my mom was married to a guy who played in the NFL. The, the, <laughs> the most amazing detail is that his concussion was not from the NFL. It was from a car accident. Yeah, well, he surely had concussions then, too, because he played in the period. Um, well, I guess they had face masks, but it's not like they were padded, you know? <laughs> well, well, this is actually something I... Well, one, I just texted you a picture. Do you have your phone nearby? Yes, I do. Let me look at this. I can't yeah. wait. Oh, gosh. Yeah, look at that. That guy looks like me. I could be Marshall Goldberg. <laughs> That's Marshall Goldberg. He was actually a star player for the um, for the Chicago Cardinals back in the day. Wow. And and he's like, he's, he's like, and, and actually this is an interesting detail. I'm not sure if Jerry Eisenberg, who wrote this book, was himself Jewish, but he, like a lot of ink was given to like Sid Luckman and, right. and to like Benny Friedman, who were these, these great uh, Jewish football players back in the day. Um, but then I'd never, I had not remembered Marshall Goldberg, but look at this guy, you know? Yeah. You know, the thing is, I look like Marshall Goldberg. You do. <laughs> I might have to put this in the show notes just so people I, can understand how Marshall Goldbergy you look. Yeah, I mean, I look the one in the helmet like that could be me wearing an old school helmet. <laughs> oh my god! I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna text this photo to my wife right now and see if she recognizes me. <laughs> I, I cannot believe that you did not otherwise know about Marshall Goldberg because. It, it could be it's that, shocking, that, <laughs> but I'd forgotten about my stepfather too. <laughs> right, well, that's true. That's true. I, I think the fact that your mom was such a colorful person um, may have, like, I was just shivering on the plains reading this book by uh, Jerry Eisenberg about players of the 1930s through the 1960s. You know, right? That, that basically it covered the NFL from 1933 through 1969. So, as far as that stat nerd aspect of fandom, for a little kid, I knew a lot about the NFL during like the pre-war and post-war era. Yeah. It's really strange. So did I because you know um the the library at my elementary school was filled with like you know the story of, of Red Grange, you know. So like I, I know all this stuff about the galloping ghost and about you know the American Association Football League's transference into the NFL. Like for some reason they just had this huge row of books at my at the actual school library about the history of professional football. Um, and so I just knew all this, you know, like I know all about Ray Nitschke and, you know, Paul Hornung, you know, you know like all these older players that I shouldn't have any sense about. But when I was a kid, I read a ton of sports biographies 
Um, and so I would just take anything off the shelf and read them. Um, and, you know, a lot of these things are just sort of, you know, dashed off in probably like two weeks or something. But I also, every year, um, from about age eight or nine on, would get that big book that was the Pro Football Index that had everyone's stats and bios from the previous season in it, oh, and yeah. then all the historical records. Remember that thing? It was like a big paperback book. Um, and I would just go through and, and you know, memorize information about, like, you know, Chuck Long or whatever, you know, like, I don't need to know about Chuck Long, but I know all the stats inexplicably. Yeah. You know, um, I did not, I had one book, I didn't have the annual book. So I had this, like my little Bible of football was this by then outdated book, but I just liked it because it had some information, uh, about it. And it talked about like the 1934 uh, NFL championship when the, the Giants beat the Bears because they went to Manhattan College and got some basketball shoes because the field was too icy, right? Right. And then the old days, there were there were coaches named Greasy Neal and players <laughs> called like Buzz Nutter and Bronco Nagurski and Crazy right. Legs Hirsch. And it just seemed, it seemed, actually, it wasn't like the Bible. It was like, it was like Homer's uh, Iliad or something. You know, it was, mm-hmm. it basically was about this ancient time, which though when you think about like the 1940 NFL championship when the Bears beat the Giants 73 to nothing, that was like basically 35 years before I discovered football when I was about right. four or five years old. Whereas now, like 35 years ago, what it, that's like the, the Chicago Super Bowl shuffle, you know? Right. Like, <laughs> that's, that's the fridge. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So like in historical terms, these, these Greek heroes that I was looking back on who wore leather helmets and played with broken noses and were called crazy legs um, – mm-hmm. It, it wasn't that long ago, and it, and it really goes to show that, like, it's the NFL is this real corporatized venture now. But there was a right. time when it was it was really trying. I mean, there was a time when when there were teams like you know there were, there were teams from Akron and Canton and and right. and and uh, and so like within our lifetime, the team has the the NFL has become super professionalized, you know, that we no longer have the Canton Bulldogs playing the Rock Island Independence in NFL <laughs> game, you know. Right. <laughs> and, and so I feel like the, that history that I studied as a kid, nobody studies anymore. Basically, year one of football is Super Bowl one, and even that right. seems super old. Uh, wh- what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with you because, you know, I always get thrown off when they talk about um, – the you know the first Super Bowl champion being the Green Bay Packers, the first NFL champion. And I was like, but there was there was literally fifty years of history before that because this is the this is the hundredth year anniversary of the NFL, right? Twenty twenty yeah. is, yeah. Um, and so like I have all this obscure information about these teams that played in the fifties too, or the or early sixties or pre AFL, all that stuff. Um, but you know, it's basically just like saying, get off my lawn, (laughs) you know, like no, no one, no 19 year old cares about Bill Haley and the comets, you know, when they're, when they're buying their new Lizzo, uh, download. Um, and when you think about it too, like the history of a sport, um, is only matters to someone, um, as it relates to their own team, I think, so that they don't really care about the, you know, mm. the Rochester Lancers or whatever. That was actually not a football team. That was a North American soccer league team, but that's another story. <laughs> another <laughs> um, podcast, ladies and gentlemen. That's another podcast. So, 
I suspect if you're a, a New England Patriots fan or something, like you know an awful lot about the New England Patriots even before Tom Brady. If you're of a certain ilk, like if you're just 20 years old, maybe you don't care about Steve Grogan's really weird neck roll. Like maybe that doesn't, you know, that doesn't interest you. <laughs> or what? that they once had a, a a running back named Vegas Ferguson. Maybe they don't care about that, <laughs> but I do. <laughs> Right, well, well, Grogan went to Kansas State. You know, I know all this stuff. You know, we're, we're we're of. There could probably be a convention like we're Star Trek nerds of the NFL of a certain generation, right? Right. That there's probably guys who are our exact same age who know exactly about Steve Grogan's neck roll because it was important to them. <laughs> Poor Steve Grogan. He's been forgotten in the over time. <laughs> uh, Tom Brady has has definitely snuffed him out, but yeah. <laughs> You know, it's funny that I think because the Chiefs were never good, I, I was never allowed to love them so much that I had a very pure NFL fandom. You know, like right. like I actually I was an eight year old with with the, with the real sense that the Dayton Triangles used to play the Decatur Staleys in in <laughs> NFL games, right? And so I, I think so when I did my NPR piece as a full grown adult, I was just it shocked me that NPR people would look down their nose at the NFL for because for me, you know, it had its own Iliad, it had its own backstory. Right. It had its own heroes. You know, it had, you know, like Ed Tall Jones was this guy in my mind who lived in the clouds and threw lightning bolts. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so yeah, I think that that's one reason why my emotional relationship still remains is that it just captured my imagination. Yeah. And part of it for me, too, is knowing that I was never going to do anything like those guys, you know, yeah. <laughs> like that's I. I I knew even at seven years old, like, well, I'm not going to play professional sports. (laughs) And then at age 40 something, when I took my DNA test and it was like, you're never going to be an athlete. I was like, oh, thanks. (laughs) I figured that out. (laughs) But but what about Marshall Goldberg? (laughs) Marshall Goldberg. My doppelganger. Was was born of a different stock. I am really fascinated by this. I sent the photo to my wife and she said, that's (laughs) (laughs) off-putting. Oh, come on. <laughs> I'm going to look up Marshall Goldberg and see if uh, if we're related in any in any way. Well, I look other forward than the to the Ashkenazi way. I look forward to your eventual um your eventual essay about um, <laughs> what Marshall Goldberg means to you. So I I will write that to believe you me. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, he was a Chicago Cardinal. I mean, this is another thing. Like, I I just happened to know when I was a kid that the Cardinals were called the Cardinals because they got their uniforms from the University of Chicago, but they were faded. And so that they were not maroon like the maroons, but they were they were red. So they're called the Cardinals. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the Packers, just like India Packing Company in Green Bay, just decided to give them a pair of socks and jerseys one year. So they became the mm-hmm. Packers, right? So, right. So there's this pre, there's this corporatized game that we know now that has all of these controversies, but there's this really goofy prehistory that I really threw myself into when I was a kid, and it encompasses both of our teams this year. The the 49ers came out of the All America Conference. Um, did you have you studied much about the All America Football Conference, the the old competing league? Yeah, you know, I know a little bit about it from reading all of those old books. So I know a bit about like from the 1940s on to like 52 or whatever it was, you know, yeah. just a little bit that I is barely in the back of my mind still. 
Yeah, yeah. When I years ago, when I was traveling on my first vagabonding trip across the United States, I I stayed with my friends aunt and uncle, and the uncle's name was Dick Renfro, and he played on that first team. Oh. And he showed me his little leather silver and red 49ers uh, helmet from 1946. It was pretty amazing. Um, and so, in in a sense, the 49ers are uh, uh, this old expansion team from 1946 from, when, from this old league that also gave us the Browns and mm-hmm. the Colts. And then, then the Chiefs are from this old league that, you know, that also gave us the, the Broncos and the Patriots and, and the Raiders, actually. And, and and so the 49ers were like, it was them and like the uh, the L.A. Dons, right? Is that yeah. my memory? Okay. Yeah. Woo, Goldberg pulling things out of the back of his head. <laughs> well, and wow. Then, and then proud they, of myself. <laughs> good job, the L.A. Dons. I don't even know what that means. Does that mean like they're like the gangsters or something? I don't, I'm not sure. I, I think so. Yeah, I've seen their logo before because I had a T-shirt um, that I bought somewhere online. It's just like a a jaunty guy with a hat, right? Right. <laughs> and they they couldn't just call them the L.A. jaunty guys with hats. So they, <laughs> like, the uh, the L.A. foppish dandies. <laughs> right. Well, it's funny how you know now the the Forty ers are an iconic team, and and so are the Raiders. I mean, those are just iconic, iconic teams. Mm-hmm. Um, but like when they when that league was folded in the NFL, the Browns, which were a part of that league, came in and just dominated. Like if you look at the NFL history of the fifties, it's all Browns right. and Lions. And right. what one thing do we know about the Browns and Lions in the modern age of the Super Bowl? They haven't played and they're terrible. <laughs> exactly. Those two teams have never made it. Those two teams that dominated football in the fifties have never made it to the Super Bowl. So it's funny how narrative this becomes and how it's how easy it is to forget uh, its own history, which right. I, which I guess is is a good pretext to transition into the fact that the Chiefs have finally become Super Bowl good, you know, <laughs> like, and you know it's interesting that these teams that um, that don't ever play in the, in the championship game or there's fifty years in between that they keep this rabid fan base is a little surprising, you know, I, I, I mean, I guess the, the corollary would be the Chicago Cubs, right? Yeah. You know, it took them a hundred years to get back to the world series or the Red Sox for that matter. Um, but I mean, it's been, it's been 50 years since the chiefs have been in the super bowl, but every single weekend they sell out that stadium. And, and in fact, I remember I had a friend from England visit Kansas in 2005. I took her to a Royals game in May. Now, in 2005, the Kansas City Royals baseball team was terrible. Right. Um, I went to, and there was like 20 Chiefs fans tailgating at a, a Royals game in May. <laughs> <laughs> that's no joke that, that they were just they were just there because they were excited about the season that was what months away right right and and so that has it's weird that I sort of have this Star Wars fandom you know that basically I loved the Cowboys and I hated the Steelers in the 70s because I loved the Royals and hated the Yankees just like I loved Luke Skywalker and hated Darth Vader right and <laughs> And, and and so my Chiefs fandom was very abstracted, yet I grew up with this understanding that the Chiefs had won the Super Bowl the year I was born. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and literally nine months, like technically I should be a Super Bowl baby because I was born nine months <laughs> and, and two days after Super Bowl I don't want to think four. about that. I don't want to think about your dad and mom consummating at, at, the, at the end of the fourth quarter. <laughs> 
Well, I, 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 I went through an experiment because how do you ask, how do you ask your parents, you know, uh, when exactly or how exactly uh, you were conceived, right? You don't, you don't, <laughs> you don't. So, so after the, right before the AFC championship, I, I, I invited them to my house. They live near me uh, when, when I'm in Kansas, they live nearby me. And so I watched the YouTube restored version of Super Bowl four and they watched it as if it was just another game, you know? <laughs> And I kept trying to prod them into like <laughs> revealing that maybe there was some sort of victory thing that led to the existence of me. And they they had no they didn't catch a hint that they, they were just sort of uh. they were interested in this old YouTube game, but were not at all, um, you know, you know, I, I don't think I was a Super Bowl baby. I think it was a complete accident. <laughs> right. At no point did your dad raise an eyebrow at your mom and they <laughs> when they went up to the guest room for seven minutes. That didn't happen. <laughs> exactly. Hank, Hank Stram and Lou Dawson had nothing to do with my conception. <laughs> Jesus. God. But I grew up like I didn't figure it was years before I figured out that timing. And it turns out right. I'm pretty sure that I'm not a Super Bowl. I, I think my parents just didn't care that much. Right. But I grew up with this sense. Did you grow up with a sense? Like this is an old staple of NFL films. The the uh, like the sixty five toss power trap. Do you know anything about this, or do you hate? I the do. Shoes? Blaster, tell him sixty five toss power trap. Get in there for sixty five toss power trap. Let's block. Let's Come on, Lenny, let's, let's get seven ball. points. Come on, let's go. Sixty five toss power trap. That might pop wide open, rats. The mentor. 65 toss power trap. Yeah. yeah. I tell you that maybe it's there. Yes, sir, boys. <laughs> so the, the Super Bowl, just again to frame things historically about how much the Super Bowl has changed, that the halftime show involved a battle reenactment <laughs> of the of the Battle of New Orleans. That literally there were guys on muskets at Tulane Stadium shooting clouds of, of smoke at each other. At a Super Bowl, and there was a marching band, and there was a uh, um, oh a hot air balloon before the game that had like oh, the, the Vikings mascot. The, the Vikings mascot had a marionette, like a a ventriloquist <laughs> puppet. Oh, this is how goofy the NFL was back in 1970. And he actually he took off in the balloon, and it crashed into a bunch of like Louisiana debutants. It was the weirdest. <laughs> Rewatching the 1970 Super Bowl was bizarre because, and they're here. Well. Okay, as the as the balloon crashes into the stands, let's talk about our sponsor, Marlboro <laughs> and Muriel Cigars. So, do you do you have any do you have any impression? I know you hate the Chiefs, but what what stands out in your memory about the nineteen seventy uh, Super Bowl tire triumph? <laughs> well, uh, not a lot because I was not yet born either. Um, I was born one year to the day of uh, the triumph of the Chiefs over the Vikings wow. 23 to 7. I was born January 10th, 1971. Wow. Um, you know, all I really remember are the great photos of like Len Dawson smoking a cigarette on the <laughs> sidelines. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, being a little bit obsessed with um, the Vikings as being the great losers over and over again in the early years because they kept going to the Super Bowl and kept losing. Um, but the thing, too, about that Super Bowl is that Joe Cap was the quarterback for the Vikings. And growing up in the Bay Area, Joe Cap was a huge hero um, because he was a Bay Area guy. And um, he coached uh, Cal for a few years, if memory uh, serves me correct, because he'd gone to Cal. 
mm-hmm. um, and he'd grown up in um, in Southern California. But he was like he was. If there was a a new car dealership being opened, Joe Cap was there cutting the ribbon. Um, He's one so, of the original Hispanic players too. His mom was yeah. Mexican. And then uh, a few years ago, he legendarily got into a fight at a CFL old timers uh, <laughs> dinner. If you've had, if you've never seen that video, Rolf, I encourage you to go find Joe Cap beating up a man who's in a walker <laughs> at a CFL old timers event. So he's like the Buzz Aldrin of, yeah. of, of the NFL. I'm I'm going to have to embed that in the show notes. Thank you, Todd. Oh God, you got to see it. Like he and this old man who literally is standing there with a cane get into a fist fight, <laughs> and the guy with the cane hits Joe Cap, and Joe Cap is just swinging on him. It's crazy. One footnote to set to the nineteen seventy Super Bowl that I didn't realize that happened. That's just sort of an interesting historical footnote is that they had a guy, a scout named Lloyd Wells, mm-hmm. who went to the historically black colleges. And so, if you look at the stars of that team, besides Lenny Dawson, um, it's like Otis Taylor went to Prairie View A and M, and and oh. Frank Pitts with the Southern. Oh, uh, Willie Lanier went to Morgan State, and Buck Buchanan went to Grambling. I didn't realize that there's that famous game where USC played Alabama that they mm-hmm. they took a team with an all black backfield and just destroyed right. the the Crimson Tide. That happened nine months after the Super Bowl that year. So, oh wow! Basically, huh. the Chiefs were sort of pioneering in in saying, "Look, if we go to Alabama, we go we won't get the best players because they don't necessarily have the best players because they're not recruiting black players." So. The genius of that Super Bowl, I didn't realize that until I was researching this podcast, is this guy Lloyd Wells, who the, who Hank Stram said, yeah, just go find me the best players you can find. And Lloyd Wells thought, well, I'm going to go to the historically black colleges. And that's why these, these you know, the Otis Taylors and the uh, Willie Lanier's, they weren't playing at, at Ohio State and 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 uh, and Alabama because they were playing at historically black colleges. So that's a funny, fun detail. Interesting. In my, in my memory, I sort of see... I sort of have a youth memory era of football that sort of goes through the through maybe the '85 Bears, um, and, and maybe sort of some into some of those Joe Montana uh, uh, Super Bowl teams in the late '80s, and then I have this it, almost when I became adult, things shifted, and then I started living overseas and traveling, and I have a very different. It's almost like my my fandom became a part of my Americanness that I, mm-hmm. I felt I felt obligated, and, and I haven't missed a Super Bowl. I, I, I've have had some Super Bowls that I haven't literally watched because I was like in India and I had to go to an internet cafe and go to ESPN.com <laughs> and and hit ref, refresh, you know. Right. And the Indian people around me are like, "Oh, the Baltimore Ravens," you know. Is, <laughs> Is that an Edgar Allan Poe reference? And it's like, how do you know that? Yes, it's an Edgar Allan Poe reference. Um, the only literary reference in an NFL team is is the Baltimore Ravens. No, no, you don't see the uh, the San Francisco Steinbecks or anything. Right, right. The the the, um, the, the San Francisco Starfish or, or the, <laughs> the Los Angeles. Uh, the Los Angeles River, I don't know. <laughs> the, the, the Los Angeles Chandler corpses or something. <laughs> um, the, the Los Angeles Lebowskis. That that could be a separate exercise. Is is like oh, certainly that's been done. If that hasn't been done, Todd, you need to do that. Like the literary mascot for every team in America, right? I will do that. I have some time. I will do that. I, I'm curious to know about your adult fandoms and how that's changed, like how your Raiders fandom has gone up against your 49ers fandom. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I the Chiefs finally got good 
in the 90s. But they got good. They just got just good enough to lose their first playoff game and break my heart. You know, like, right. There's there's a famous uh, 1995 playoff game where they were like they they were 13 and three. They were the number one seed in the AFC. And they lost to the Colts 10 to 7 because Lynn Elliott missed three field goals, like uh, closer than 40 <laughs> yards, right? And so I have these very specific heartbreaks that are tied into sort of this rejuvenated uh, Chiefs fandom. So that like when Mahomes, did you watch the game uh, last week? Of course, week? yeah. So when Mahomes made that break and like that, that amazing touchdown he ran for, like I was as a Chiefs fan, I just wanted him to run out of bounds, you know, because by <laughs> by Chiefs standards, that's a triumph, you know. That, that like under under Andy Reid, uh, you know, Alex Smith cho- coached the game. They had a twenty eight point lead against Andrew Luck and the Colts, you know, seven years ago, and somehow they managed to lose that game. So I, I've had to reinvent my Chiefs fandom. But I'm curious, since the 49ers are in the Super Bowl as well, how that has developed over the years and how as an adult you have been a fan as opposed to as a kid. Well, and you know, you're you're sort of doubly screwed here with this game because all of your recent um, Chiefs disappointments have actually been tied to the 49ers because every decent 49er quarterback has become a Chiefs quarterback. Yeah. You've got Steve Bono, you got Joe Montana, Ovis Gerback, Alex Smith, is there is there another one? Did, did did Garcia ever suit up for the Chiefs? No, Gar- Garcia <laughs> didn't. But I swear there's one. Other. Did Trent Green play for the no. Niners? Um, Dave Craig, Steve Fuller. No. Oh, well, Steve Fuller played for the Chiefs, but not when they were good. Right. So, so this is yeah. No, that's a thing that I think this is the Todd Blackledge cult curse. That basically. <laughs> But in 83, the, the, the Chiefs could have drafted Dan Marino or Jim Kelly, and they drafted Todd Blackledge. Right. And, and like for the next 25 years, they just they got a bunch of old quarterbacks that were decent from the 49ers and, and similar teams, right? Right. And, and so this is a weird bit of minutia. The Chiefs have had three quarterbacks start an AFC championship. Len Dawson, Patrick Mahomes, and one other. Can you guess who that was? Uh, Rich Gannon. No, good guess, but um, Rich Gannon is probably the fifth person I was thinking about. But uh, Joe Montana, Joe Mon. Oh, so right, right, yeah. That's how. Like the the Chiefs have had oftentimes one of the best teams in football, and then they'll lose to the Colts or like the Dolphins in in the divisional round, and then that's it, you know. And so it was just emotionally hard. I could never fully be uh, a Chiefs fan emotionally, like say I've been a Royals fan, because it was just a guaranteed heartbreak. But really, I think that. In a way, it, it, I'm going to have to reinvent my fandom now that Mahomes is this superstar drafted quarterback because I'm basically you. You got the sense that when like Alex Smith or Steve Bono showed up, the other team was never worried. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like like basically when the when when Andrew Luck and the Colts were down 38 to 10 in that 2013 playoff game, they thought, oh, we, we got this, right? Um, and, and so it just feels like Mahomes, uh, fingers crossed, isn't going to blow a game like all of these uh, cast-off Raiders and 49ers quarterbacks have. To your original question before we went down this sad path of the all-time <laughs> horrible Chiefs quarterbacks, God, this list is really just a terrible – Tyler Palco, good Lord. Um Kyle Orton. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, uh, you know, of course, your fandom waxes and wanes, I think, a little bit as as your attention does. Um, 
but you know, as a kid, I was lucky because the Raiders and the 49ers would sort of alternate between being good or bad at any given time. And then the Raiders moved to LA and living in the Bay area at the time, it was easy just to, to spend most of my time thinking about the 49ers who were great for, you know, 15 straight years. Yeah. Um, you know, my uh, attentions moved more directly towards the Raiders in the 2000s. Um, I think I spent more time because you you suddenly you're an adult. You have to pay taxes. Uh, <laughs> you, you can't you can't follow every fantasy movement of every single team. So uh, you know I think I I threw my lot in more directly with uh, with the Raiders. But then mid 2000s when Kaepernick was on the team, I really liked him. You know he was an exciting player. Uh, and then, of course, they went to the Super Bowl that year in, gosh, what year was that? Was it I think it 13? was. I think it was the year that the lights in the Superdome went out. Yeah. And they were playing Flacco and the, and the Ravens. Yeah. Um, what year was that? Let's see. That was, yeah, 2013, um, where they lost 34 to 31. Um, and... Like I was, I was super excited about that. That was that was a great season. You know, I, I think uh, my identif- my identification with particular teams. I've always been an East Bay person. I grew up in the East Bay, and so I've always been an Oakland A's, Oakland Raiders, Golden State Warriors fan more than the San Francisco team. So San Francisco has always been, you know, my one A. Um, but this year, you know, it was easy to to follow both of them because both of them were pretty good. The Raiders were actually pretty good this year, but the 49ers were so dominant that it was fun to watch them. You know, it's fun to watch that defense play. It's fun to watch Nick Bosa run around and hit people. And because I look so much like Jimmy Garoppolo, it's a little off-putting for some <laughs> people when they see me. They think I'm him. Um, but, you know, it was a fun team to watch. There's big personalities. It's neat to, you know, see Richard Sherman play and, and play at a high level again. Um, but, you know, nothing matches how you feel when you're 10 or 11 about some team. You know, you finally have something that you identify yourself with, and that's important to you. I don't I don't identify myself with a sports team anymore. Um, it, but so it's sort of like, you know, that line from Stand By Me, like you're never as close to your best friends as you are when you're 12 or whatever. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said for that for for fandom. It's like your it's your first love story is that team that breaks your heart. Yeah, you know, I, I think I'm going to watch the Super Bowl and cheer for the Chiefs in my in the own, my own complicated way that I've come to love the Chiefs over the years. But it's going to be different than watching the Royals in the World Series mm-hmm. in recent years because, like, my childhood emotional relationship was so close to that because they were good in the George Brett years of the 70s. Right. And so I, I was able to just transpose that perfectly into my adulthood, whereas now, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't born yet when— um, when the Chiefs last won the Super Bowl. As, as a quick aside, you know, we exchanged text messages. Like the greatest sports moment of my life is, to, is going with my dad to the 2014 wildcard game. This is a baseball game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 didn't, I didn't text you to talk smack after that because the Royals, <laughs> the Royals beat, the, beat the A's because I knew that I wouldn't have wanted you to text me to talk no, smack afterwards. That was a very upsetting game. I can still see John Lester blowing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, oh. and again, this isn't a baseball podcast, but I was, oh. I was thinking about that, that, that basically God. I knew that my joy would be inverse to your sorrow, <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't rub it in. Like somehow I understood my own fandom so much that if you had a twinge of – 
of emotional attachment to my stakes in that game that I couldn't just rub that in because that would be devastating to see that happen. So. Yeah, but plenty of my friends did, so <laughs> don't worry. Like, hey, Todd, cool to see your A's lose again. Best right. wishes. <laughs> right. right. These are all guys I went to college with who have the emotional wherewithal of a chimpanzee. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think that that might go into this childhood thing. There's a there's an open heartedness that you have when you're a kid that you don't when you're 20, right? Right. <laughs> um, and then and then you have sort of a mix of everything as an adult. And so I was an open hearted Royals fan in 2014, 2015. I'm a, I'm a strong Chiefs fan in 2020, but not in a way that compares. You know, I will right. be. I will be interested in the game. I'll be I'll, I'll I'll always be vested in the Chiefs, but it won't tug at my heart like the Royals did simply because of the way they were when I was a little kid. So, right. so what about you? What's your emotional stake in this game? My emotional stake is I hate the Chiefs, and so okay. I want them to lose. Okay. But the corollary, though, is I'm a huge fan of Mahomes. Hmm. Like, I love to watch Mahomes play. There's, I've never seen a quarterback who could throw the ball like Patrick Mahomes. And so... As the old saying goes, you know, <laughs> I I hate the game, but I I love the player. <laughs> right. What do you think of Andy Reid? Because one one thing, and I, I tried to research before this interview, and there are more man hours of NFL podcasts and YouTube videos than I have hours left in my life. You know, <laughs> that, 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 it's, that, it's, that there's so much talk around the NFL, but people love Mahomes, even if they don't mm-hmm. like the Chiefs, and people really seem to respect Andy Reid. Yeah, and you know Andy Reid was a, a 49er coach during their um, their halcyon years as well. Um, mm-hmm. He was the quarterback coach for I want to say for for Steve Young. Is that right? Um, I, I don't remember. No, I, I might be on crack about that, or maybe I'm thinking of Mike Holmgren. Um, but yeah, I, I got I got no beef with Andy Reid, and he seems like a, a an interesting and uh, innovative NFL mind. Um, I recently. This is going to sound weird, knowing everything about me that you might know. I recently watched an episode of Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives <laughs> that he was on, okay. <laughs> where he and Guy Fieri went around Kansas City eating food together, and he seemed perfectly pleasant eating uh, uh, barbecue, barbecue with yeah. <laughs> Guy Fieri. Uh, Andy Reid did not coach the 49ers. He coached at the Packers. He is the oh, offensive okay. assistant there uh, and quarterback coach. Um, so... Like, yeah, I got, I have no personal beef with them, but, and you know, the thing about watching Mahomes play when they were down 28 to whatever it was, I was like, they're going to drop 50 today. It doesn't matter if they're down 28. And so I, I, as a 49er fan, I would like them to win this game, but I think there's a high probability that Patrick Mahomes throws for 485 yards and seven touchdowns. Like he might just turn it on like that. And that would be fun to watch. Like, you know, that'd be some history. And part of me is like Andy Reed, he would like to win a title. He never has won a title. It'd be pretty cool if he won. Like that's a nice story. It would be better emotionally for me if the 49ers won. It'd be nice for Jimmy Garoppolo to to finally have some success and something in his life other than all the titles he won in New England and his beautiful good looks and <laughs> the porn stars that he dates and all that. Um, <laughs> like, finally, something good happens for Jimmy G. Uh, so I, I, I'm mostly just hoping for a good game. I want them both to do well. 
<laughs> but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't actually be terribly upset if the Chiefs won because I think it would be good for the NFL for Patrick Mahomes to win the Super Bowl. If if the if the 49ers did win, um, would you feel emotionally similar to like 81 season or the 94 season? Or, no, God, or? no. 81 was remarkable. You you gotta you gotta put this in context. Like after the 49ers won, um, when they beat the Bengals in that Super Bowl, for a month at at Castle Rock Elementary, you only wore red and gold every single day. Right. Like it was a thing. Like every single day you wore red and gold to school, and every day on the blacktop. You were Joe Montana throwing the ball to, to Dwight Clark. You were Earl Cooper. You know, you were like, that was it. Every kid in the world in the Bay Area was wearing red and gold and we're the San Francisco 49ers. Um, after the Super Bowl, what I'll probably do is um, change the channel and not think about it again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't invest too much emotional stock into it except during the game. And really, I reserve my profound emotions for for baseball. Like when the Oakland A's are in the playoffs, I'm a wreck. I'm an absolute wreck. And I think it might have something to do with the length of the season. Like you're following a baseball team for 162 games. Like that's that's a significant portion of the year where you're paying attention every day to a thing. And then there's that chance that they might win that thing. And all of a sudden, all the all the watching, all the reading, all the paying attention and listening to the, the talk shows and everything, it plays a bigger role. It's just like, oh, if I miss a game, oh, it's all right. I missed one game. There'll be another one. They play 16 weeks. Um, but I, I don't have that same, um, that same pout around the house where 37 good luck charms for football that I do for baseball. Uh, I'm the same way, and and it's interesting that even though I have a very strong, invested NFL fandom, which is why I'm having this conversation with you right now, <laughs> it feels like even having this conversation, it, it's like a long time coming. I almost called you from Sri Lanka last year if the Chiefs would have made it, if D Ford had not lined up offsides. <laughs> yeah, um, God. <laughs> I, I would have called you a year ago from Sri Lanka, so in a way... Yeah, th- my emotional fandom is stronger in baseball, but it's strong enough in football that this conversation felt important. And Todd, I'm, um, thank you for having it with me. You know, Todd, four years ago, we talked about a Chiefs 49ers Super Bowl, uh, and it still holds up because in a way it wasn't really a a conversation about uh, the game itself so much as lifelong fandom and the neuroses that underpin it. Um, And it's interesting. uh, Some things have stayed the same, but there's sort of a memento mori aspect to it. We're four years older. things (laughs) Things have changed. And uh, like someday, the, the the maybe the Chiefs and the 49ers will be in the Super Bowl and we'll be dead, you know. So right. like, uh, time keeps moving on. Four years ago, when we talked, Andy Reid had never won a Super Bowl. Now he's won two, and he's in his fourth in five years. You talked about how you fit, you hated the Chiefs, which is sort of yes. your birthright as a Raiders fan. Yes. But now it feels like a lot of people hate the Chiefs in sort of a, a Tom Brady Patriots sort of way. Um, so right. do, what do you think? If four years on, do you think people hate the Chiefs because they're good or are they still do they still have a free pass because they have a likable quarterback and a and coach and Taylor Swift? 
Um, the Taylor Swift thing is really weird um, because that has somehow leaked into conservative media as oh, being a bad thing that this that these two very attractive, very wealthy, nice young people have found love is somehow <laughs> a bad thing for the world. Um, and I think it's, of course, because Travis Kelsey is also uh, outwardly saying, go get vaccinated and things like that, which hmm. is like, like that's somehow the worst thing on the planet. Uh, I'm, so I'm a little fascinated by this whole Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift thing, because I turned on uh, accidentally the night entertainment tonight for five minutes and it was wall to wall Kelsey Swift. So, Whoa. yeah, it was very strange. I didn't even know that show was still on television. I thought everyone who watched it and made it was dead. Um I, you know, I think Kansas City is still a Midwest team, and that changes the equation to it. So mm. they're not a Dallas that is always like, you know, there's a real inferiority complex in Texas around their big cities. Why don't you treat Houston and Dallas like you do New York and L.A.? And so we're going to make everything bigger and better. You know, we're going to build the godforsaken stadium and all that stuff, and then we're going to have an owner who's brash and you know, all that. And we're America's team. You are not America's team. Um, like I, I enjoyed Dallas's failure because of their hubris. Yeah. I yeah. hated the Pittsburgh Steelers because they were good and they beat the Raiders all the time. I hate the Kansas City Chiefs because they're good and they beat the Raiders all the time. <laughs> I don't right. hate them on um on a national level. And I think it's hard for people to really hate a team um that's been historically sort of mid-level you know, this mm. entire time and whose coach is affable. You know, the, the, the person that you see in the ads and Patrick Mahomes seems like a, a nice enough guy. Um, like all those things make it hard to hate them at the same level. You hate the Patriots where the coach seems like for sure. Uh, if there was a death camp, he'd be running it <laughs> and, and where the quarterback is so <laughs> handsome. It's just like, that's not a, that's not anyone I've ever could relate to. It's like, Oh, I'm going to come back for my 30th year and I'm going to divorce my supermodel wife because she doesn't want me to play, but I'll find someone as equally attractive as one of the five most attractive people to ever walk the planet to replace her. It's like that, that doesn't play in just the normal world. That, that, that seems gross. And then their success, of course, is upsetting as well. So there's, there's, I think there's so much more wrapped up into Dallas and New England than there is into a a, a team that plays in a cold ass city um, where the coach eats a lot of burgers and barbecue, um, and where historically um, they've been more of a blue collar team prior to you know Patrick Mahomes and. Um, and Travis Kelsey really bringing some star power, some some national star power. You mentioned Midwest. So does that mean they're sort of the Chicago Bulls um, uh, from the 90s? Uh, I think so. I think that's a good uh, a, a good parallel. Yeah. It's like a team that you've always sort of you might have feelings about them because they play your team. But like you don't think of them as an underdog or as a front runner because they just are sort of in the middle somewhere. But look, I'm going to be clear. They are super fun to watch. I mean, I hate the Chiefs with a passion reserved only for things that I love, typically. Are you superstitious at all with your 49ers or, or Raiders rituals? Um, You know, for football, I'm not. But for baseball, I am. Like, if, if the A's ever make it back to the playoffs, I'll surround myself in hats and shit. Um, 
But for football, no, I'm not really superstitious. The one thing that is true, though, is I don't like to watch with anybody else. Like, mm. I don't, I'm not one of those people that wants to go to a bar and watch a game. I don't want to go to your house to watch a game. I don't want you coming to my house to watch a game. I want to be alone. I want to watch the game. I don't want you talking to me. I don't want trivia. I don't, I don't, no, I just want to watch the fucking game. Um, now, sometimes I think, oh, if I pee right now, there'll be an interception. But that hasn't proven historically, statistically <laughs> true. <laughs> no, well, I, I, um, you know, obviously I was very upset when the Buccaneers beat the Chiefs in the Super Bowl a few years ago. But one thing that I did not do that year was a Super Bowl podcast. Um, because mm. because last year, I my my old gym coach's father was part of a Native American football team that beat the Giants in Oklahoma in 1927. So, oh wow! Every year, I've done a, a, a Super Bowl special, which, to be honest, maybe my audience doesn't really care about it. You know, I just <laughs> I have to I have to force my travel loving audience to put up right. with football every year. Um, but the one year that I did not do a podcast, um, so I think part of the reason why, why I asked you back on the podcast, Todd, is, is for superstition that, I, that I'm afraid that if I don't do a Super Bowl podcast, the Chiefs might lose again this year. I, I think that's perfectly reasonable. It's interesting, these, um, these loyalties that can flow out of individuals as well yeah. as teams, because Mahomes, there's something kind of wholesome about Mahomes. And after the Super Bowl championship four years ago, um, my mom became a huge Mahomes. She just loved Mahomes. And there was, mm -hmm. um, like, in our last podcast, we talked about, at the last time we talked about the Chiefs hadn't won a Super Bowl in 50 years. And so right. the 56 or 65 pot, toss power trap was the big famous play. Well, now it's 2 3 jet chip wasp. And NFL Films did a, a special, you know, thing about this play that won the Super Bowl. It's third and 15. Chiefs need some Mahomes magic. It was a brilliant call, made at the perfect time by a 24-year-old in his first Super Bowl. And because the pandemic flowed out of that Super Bowl, because I spent a lot of time, my parents are now in assisted living, but they lived next door to me at the time. Back when we didn't know what COVID was, I spent a lot of time hanging out with my parents. Right. And we must have watched that like 10 or 15 times. And, oh, wow. And, and, and my mom, who isn't super sharp neurologically. She loved that so much. She just, Patrick Mahomes was like her favorite person that year. Part of my COVID bonding with my parents and my mom in particular was watching this NFL films thing that she couldn't have given a crap about the Chiefs a few months before, but she just liked right. Mahomes. Uh, and because she was sort of coming to it for the first time every time, her, her excitement was very true. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's so funny. Um... My grandmother, who's who's passed away many years ago at this point, like 15 years now, um, lived here in the desert um, near us and then also lived up in Seattle. And my uncle, I don't know if we talked about this before, my uncle, who's also long since passed, well, not long since, just a couple years, uh, my uncle used to own the Seattle Supersonics, the basketball <laughs> team, um, but also was very involved with the Seahawks and University of Washington football. Um, and was a huge supporter of all Seattle sports because he had owned the Sonics. Um, and my grandmother in her declining years, um, you know, when she had dementia and that sort of thing, was absolutely in love with Ken Griffey Jr. Hmm. Uh, yeah, you know? I, understandably, yeah. And just loved him, thought he was the most adorable guy on earth. And like 
my my uncle would videotape games and bring videotapes over for her just to watch it. And just like with your mom, every day the you know Griffey would um, you know go three for five, <laughs> the same game, right? Right. <laughs> and you know he'd appear in the post game talk with his backwards baseball cap on at the time, right? Like that was his thing. And my grandmother just loved Ken Griffey Jr. And I'd show up to her house and I'd have on a backwards baseball cap because it was, you know, the 90s. And she'd be like, you're not as cute as Ken Griffey Jr. (laughs) And there was this real attachment that she had to his success for whatever reason. And I don't know if it's because she knew that her son was into it um, or that I was into sports, whatever it might be. But there's something about um, that sort of joy that comes from identifying with someone else's success that I think is interesting. And I think it's also the basis of what you see when you go to a city like Green Bay um, or a city like like Pittsburgh. And and I'm going to be in Kansas City in a couple of days, so I'll find out this is true for Kansas City, um, where the entire identity of that place is tied to the success of that football team. You can, it, it, listeners, if you've never been to Green Bay, Wisconsin before, it is all Packers. Like every single thing, every car has a Packers sticker or flag. Every house has a Packers flag. Every every person is wearing Packers gear. And I'm not talking about during the football season. Last time I was there was in the dead of summer, and hmm. it looked like Lambo. And then wow. when I toured Lambo with like 25 grown people dudes were sobbing walking through lambeau field just like oh i can't believe it like oh lombardi stood here and i was like well the grass is actually probably a little newer than what he stood on but this identifying with that success be it you know from when they were kids in the 60s or the 50s um or you know the Brett Favre here or the Aaron Rodgers here, whatever it might be, is so tied to their own identity. And so the wins and the losses feel like personal affronts. And so that it makes a lot of sense. Like the, the scrappy little brother idea of Buffalo is mm. it can never win the big one, but they get close enough. And now how Kansas city's point of view has changed because they were sort of the scrappy Midwest team. Who's now, you know, dating Taylor Swift. Have you read Paul Fussell's book about class? No. Okay. Mm-hmm. Paul Fussell, I'm not even sure. He's he's a social critic, but maybe a historian. Um, and I, I actually have a long quote I'm going to read you, and I'm curious to know what you think. Okay. And, and one, in the context of ma- male fandom, but you also brought up... Uh, uh, was it was it your grandmother or the, yes. the, yeah yeah and and then uh, I'm curious to know if if female fandom is different if there's something kinder and gentler but Paul, Paul Fussell this book came out in 1980 it's a famous book mm-hmm. about social class in America he says two motives urge middle class and prole fans to obsession obsession with their sports. One is their need as losers to identify with winners the mm-hmm. need to scream and dance we're number one while holding their index finger erect. A hockey player was quoted as saying, the whole object of a pro game is to win. That is what we sell. We sell it to a lot of people who don't win at all in their regular lives. They involve Mm -hmm. themselves with their team, a winning team. End quote. In addition to this appeal through the various success, sports are popular for middles and proles to follow because they sanction a flux of pedantry, dogmatism, record-keeping, 
Why secret knowledge and pseudo-scholarship of the sort that is usually associated with the decision-making or the executive, the opinion-molding classes? Hmm. World Series and the Super Bowl give every man his opportunity to perform as a learned bore, to play for the moment the impressive barroom pedant, to imitate for a brief season the superior classes identified with their practice of weighty utterance and informed opinion which is to say that the World Series and the Super Bowl constitute harmless twice-yearly opportunities, occurring oddly near the winter and summer solstices, as if designed by nature herself, for the plain man to garner some self-respect. They are therefore indispensable as democratic holy days and ritual occasions. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. He's not wrong. That's like a learned thing from childhood all the way to adulthood is like, you can go into the scariest bar in whatever city you're in, and if you're feeling threatened and you look up at the screen they're playing a baseball game, you can turn to the guy next to you and say, I'll tell you what, man, Aaron Judge is a beast. And the guy's going to be like, oh, you think so? I'm a Stanton guy. You're like, oh, well, Stanton, and have some obscure knowledge about Giancarlo Stanton, and all of a sudden you guys are the best of friends and you're drinking beers together. There is there is a leveling of the classes Hmm. based on sports fandom for that for that very reason. Actually, here's a question for you, Todd. Is fair weather fandom permissible or not? Hmm. Because like one reason why the 2015 Royals World Series was so important to me is that I I followed every game that year. Like I right. I, I paid attention to 162 games. I admit with the Chiefs, I don't always watch regular season Chiefs game. Like I don't have that long tail emotional thing, but in a way I'm not sure if it isn't just as satisfying and more mentally healthy for me to only watch seriously the playoffs and the Super Bowl as a Chiefs fan. Right. Um, and then even for my wife to not really care what an end zone was, but enjoy when, when you know, you Travis catches the ball and they cut to Taylor and all that stuff as well. Right. So <laughs> I, I, I haven't, I don't, I don't know yet. I, I need you to help me figure this out, Todd. Is it better to be a fair weather fan where you don't invest a lot of emotions and years and years of loss um, or is or are are the titles made true by the fact that you were really upset when um, Lynn Elliott shanked that field goal against the Colts <laughs> in the 1990s? What do you think? Um, well, there's 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 two kinds of fairweather fans, of course. There's the ones that jump on the bandwagon when a team gets good and then leave when that team gets bad. Um, and I think about that as it relates to like the Golden State Warriors, who I've been a fan of. For, I'm 53, so I've been a fan of them for 53 years. Um, and who I used to now see all these people wearing Dubs gear, and I'm like, you were not a Golden State Warriors fan when Joe Barry Carroll and Purvis Short were averaging 16 a year and they were winning 19 games and World B Free was running the point. You were you did not care then. You do not get to be obsessive like me now. So there's that kind of thing. Um as it turns out, I can be a little fair weather in that same way as it relates to basketball. I mean, I'm a huge Golden State Warriors fan, but I can't devote my mind to 82 games or whatever it is. Like, I just can't. And so I really start paying attention right about the All-Star break. <laughs> and and then when the playoffs come for the Warriors, like, I'm all in. <laughs> I can't do anything but watch all the games. Um and I think that's better for me emotionally because if I think if for these for these um, games or these sports that run for nine months at a time and games are being played every two days, 
man, I can't, I, I don't have the emotional space to be upset or, or conflicted on a day to day basis. I mean, that's why, that's why I have social media, um, where I can fight Nazis and really make it work. So I think being fair weather in that regard is good for our adult mental health. I think when you're young, it's that daily obsession that that allows you to have this sort of fair weather attention as an adult. It's like, hey, I did my time, man. I spent 25 years watching every Oakland A's game and listening to them on the radio, on a transistor radio in my bed, you know, like for 25 years. So I can just pay attention to them in the summer only. <laughs> well, like I've said before, like a historically unique, I will never be a fan of any team that has this moment between the Super Bowl appearances and the most famous woman in the world dating the tight end. You right. know, it's just, it's never going to happen again. So I, I may as well enjoy it. Yeah. And I'm just happy for those kids, you know, young, good looking, wealthy liberals. Oh my God. Hook up. I'm, I'm proud of you too. <laughs> I, I hope you know, you know, that people have already speculated. Is he going to pull out a, a ring and take a knee, at, you know, after oh, the Jesus. trophy presentation? I mean, that would be super annoying for anybody who's not a Chiefs fan, but super cool for everybody else. They've only been dating for like five months. That's you true. Don't, you That's don't true. propose after five months. <laughs> and you don't but do it, it on uh, in Vegas at the Legion Stadium, <laughs> for God's sake. <laughs> That's true. That's true. This, they, isn't, they, this isn't Friday Night Fucking Lights, Rolf. These people they, have class. They, they can find an Elvis impersonator uh, person to get them married <laughs> before they leave the stadium. That's a great idea. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.